Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. I want to give a special shout out to uh, my dad and to my sister who had birthdays this week. Uh, happy birthday, Pops, and happy birthday, Sis. We are going to be going over Mosiah chapter 7 through 10 today. There's a lot of history in these chapters, and it's good. It's good to understand history because when we understand history, then we can put in the context of the doctrine here and why they were teaching that doctrine at that time. So bear with me as we go over the history a little bit more, and then we'll jump into some great doctrine that we discuss in these chapters here. At the end of the book of Omni, Amalekai talks about a group of people who wanted to return to the land of Lehi-Nephi, the land of their first inheritance. And he talks about how there's a large group that went out there and had a huge fight and then only 50 of them returned to tell the tale. And then they went back and they were led by a man named Zenith. And Amalekai had a brother that he's, he hadn't heard of uh, for the rest of his life. And then, of course, we read later in Mosiah chapter 9, which we'll cover in a little bit more detail later, through Zenith's personal account that he was a spy, that he was sent out to determine how the Nephites could really bring their army in to destroy the Lamanites. And when he saw that there was good among them, he had compassion on them. And he went back and said, you know, I think it's a, a mistake. And his leader, who was a bloodthirsty man, decided that he wanted to kill Zenith instead and, and go on with the plan. And because of that, it started a, a pretty big battle where he says that dad fought against dad and brother against brother. And only 50 people came back to tell the tale to their wives and, and to their children. And also apparently to King Benjamin, who was the king at the time. And they're not heard of for those 80 years until King Mosiah II's reign. Okay, When King Mosiah says in verse 1 that he is tired, basically, of their teasings. We haven't heard from him for 80 years. And so he sends a group of 16 men led by a man named Ammon to the land of Lehi-Nephi to discover whatever happened to those people. So Ammon leads these people, although admittedly he says they didn't know which course they were to follow. But they wander in the wilderness for 40 days, very biblical number there, and they come to a hill which uh, is called Shilom, and they pitch their tents, and Ammon takes three of his brethren, and they go to look out and spy over the city and see if this is indeed the, the land that they're looking for. And while they're, they're out there, they are taken prisoner by the king's guards, and they're thrown into prison for for two days. And then in, in verses 9 through 16, Limhi identifies himself. This is the, the king over the, the people that Zenith had taken uh, out of the land of Zarahemla, and they're now living in the land of Lehi-Nephi. And he identifies himself as the grandson of Zenith and as the son of King Noah, and that he's the king of the people there. He explains to Ammon that he threw him out into prison because he was outside the gates, and how dare that Ammon and his three other brethren would even approach the king when he was outside of his gates. These are, these are difficult times. And Ammon, of course, explains his mission, which was great news to Limhi, because he didn't know anything about the people of Zarahemla at that time. He didn't know if they were destroyed or if they were lost or gone, because we'll read later how he, he sent out people to go find them and, and ask for help, and they didn't find them. So they've been kind of on their own for, for quite some time. So Limhi rejoices. In fact, he gathers all of his people to the temple, and he talks about the history of of the people over that time. And this one brings up one of the major themes here in these chapters and one of the major themes of the Book of Mormon. And that is when you are in the promised land, the promise is that if you're righteous, you will be protected and you will prosper. And on the other side of it, if you do not keep the commandments, then you are in danger of being wiped out or in bondage. And that's what he's reminding the people. He's given a quick history 
again, here goes back to history, of the last 80 years that since his grandfather Zenith brought the people in, that his wicked father Noah had the people doing things that they should not be doing, how they killed the prophet Abinadi, and how they were now in bondage to the Lamanites. And in verses 19 through 20, and by the way, we will cover in great detail the history of that in future podcasts, but we're just given a quick history right now. In 19 through 20, Limhi reminds the people of how the promises of the promised land work, just like we just talked about. And he says here, Therefore, lift up your heads and rejoice and put your trust in God, in that God who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and also that God who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and caused that they should walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and fed them with manna that they might not perish in the wilderness. And many more things did he do for them. Verse 20, And again, that same God has brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem and has kept and preserved his people even until now. And behold, it is because of our iniquities and abominations that he has brought us into bondage. So here we see that when the people trust the Lord, he will deliver them. He'll deliver them from bondage. He'll keep them safe. He will feed them. But when we do not follow the Lord and our iniquities are high and our abominations are present, then we are in danger of bondage and being destroyed and and wiped off from the face of the earth even. That's the promise of the promised land. And he goes on in verse 25. He says, For if this people had not fallen into transgression, and he's talking about his own people right now, the Lord would not have suffered that this great evil should come upon them. But behold, they would not hearken unto his words. But there arose contentions among them, even so much that they did shed blood among themselves. Great reminder for us that we have to follow the prophets. That if we don't, we are in danger. We're on shaky ground. They slew Abinadi, who was the prophet, who was called there to call them to repentance. And there's a little bit of a pearl right here that Limhi drops. And we will certainly go over this in, in greater detail. But I want to cover a little bit of it right now. In verse 27, he says, And because he said unto them that Christ was the God, the Father of all things, and said that he should take upon him the image of man, and it should be the image after which man was created in the beginning. Or in other words, he said that man was created after the image of God, and that God should come down among the children of men, and take upon him flesh and blood, and go forth upon the face of the earth. We will go over the teachings of Abinadi in future podcasts, and there are very important chapters in the Book of Mormon for sure. But I want to talk about this, and I think we can cover it this time, and I think we can cover it next time. Uh, I think it'll be beneficial both times. But this is one of the doctrines that I feel like members of the church struggle with a little bit as well. I know that non-members of the church have a really hard time with this one to some extent, although when you have a trinity saying that Christ is God doesn't seem to be too much of a problem. Even saying that he came down and brought upon himself the flesh doesn't seem to be a bit of a problem for them, but it's different. They don't understand that Christ is a separate being. We understand that Christ is a separate being from God the Father. So therefore, to say that he is God and that he's the father of all things sometimes ruffles a few feathers. So I want to go over that, how he is, how Jesus Christ is our God, and also is our Father. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus Christ is Elohim or that he takes the place of Elohim as God the Father, as our Creator spiritually. However, this is how he is our Father. First of all, if you remember, Michael and the Savior, Jesus Christ, were sent by Elohim, God the Father, 
to create the world. And in doing so, then, as creators, they did become fathers of the world. And Adam, of course, Michael became Adam, was also our father, because if you go back in through our genealogy, eventually you get down to Adam. So therefore, he is, he is our father as well. Christ, having created Adam from Michael's spirit and then also from the dust of the earth, then also becomes his father in that way. So in that way, Christ is our father. The other way Christ is our father is when we are baptized by water and also by the Holy Ghost, right? When we receive the Holy Ghost, we take upon us his name and we become his sons and daughters. We are adopted spiritually and he becomes our new spiritual father. So therefore, he is our father in that sense. And this also makes him our God. Now, don't get too worked up in this. I know we're monotheistic. We have we pray to Father in heaven. We're not praying to Jesus Christ. We pray to Father in heaven through Jesus Christ. But Jehovah is the God of the Old Testament, and Jehovah is Jesus Christ. So don't get too lost in that, and be okay with him being your God and your Father, and then also having God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, be all true all at once. It's not a Trinity thing, and it shouldn't be that complicated. But if it doesn't quite make sense to you, Stick with it. Keep reading it. We'll get to it. We'll get, we'll understand it together. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. And by all means, don't do what uh, the people of King Noah did and uh, persecute or burn at the stake figuratively or literally any prophet or any other teacher who espouses this teaching because it is true doctrine and, and it's something that we do need to understand as members of the church. Now, at the end of chapter 7, he reminds them of the covenant that they've made, that they are going to follow the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that they are going to keep the promises of the promised land. And in verse 33, Limhi promises the people, he says, But if ye will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart, and put your trust in him, and serve him with all diligence of mind, if ye do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. And with that, King Limhi finishes his speech and lets Ammon talk. And Ammon gets up there and he talks about the history of the people of Zarahemla. And he gives particular attention to King Benjamin's final speech, you know, the epic speech that we just covered just recently. And then with that, Limhi sends the people home, says, go prepare yourselves, get ready, because we're going to try and come up with a plan to escape the bondage that we're in from the Lamanites. And then he lets Ammon read the record of his people from the time that Zenith uh, had led his people out of the land of Zarahemla. And when Ammon finishes reading the records, Limhi asks Ammon if he is able to interpret languages. And Ammon says no. And so Limhi explains that after being in bondage and, and having it bad for so long, uh, he sent 43 men to go find the land of Zarahemla and ask if they can, well, this is an appeal unto our brethren to deliver us out of bondage. And they were lost. They got lost in the wilderness. They didn't know where they were going. And they come across this land, which is desolate. It says it's covered with bones of men and beasts and also covered with ruins of buildings of every kind. Having discovered a land which had been peopled with a people who were as, as numerous as the hosts of Israel. That was verse 8, the end of verse 8. And it says in verse 9, And for a testimony that the things that they had said are true, they have brought 24 plates which are filled with engravings, and they are of pure gold. And now we have more scripture that are alluded to, right? We have more plates. Now, we've read about these plates before, and we remember that Coriantumr, who was the last survivor of the Jaredites, besides Ether, who was the prophet who witnessed his, uh, his destruction, that Coriantumr 
had brought with him uh, a stone tablet with the writing and a history of, of his people. And we know that King Mosiah the first had already translated that because those Coriantumr had lived with the people of Zarahemla for what the space of, I want to say, nine moons. And so they, they had got to know him a little bit. But now we have these 24 plates written by the prophet Ether, who had witnessed the destruction of these people, who had taken care to either abridge or at least to write down the complete history of the Jaredite people. And these are the plates which were abridged by Moroni in between the Book of Mormon in, in the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moroni in the Book of Mormon. So that's what we're talking about right here. And of course, Ammon can't help him, but he knows that King Mosiah II has this gift. And that leads us into an even greater discussion about the gift of seership and about being a prophet and a seer and a revelator. In verse 13, it says, Now Ammon said unto him, to King Limhi, I can assuredly tell thee, O king, of a man that can translate the records. For he has wherewith that he can look and translate all records that are of ancient date. And it is a gift from God, and the things are called interpreters. And no man can look in them except he be commanded, lest he should look for that he ought not, and he should perish. And whosoever is commanded to look in them, the same is called a seer. So very interesting. Take, take note that he is looking into something. He has a device. He has some sort of means whereby he can interpret these languages and bring to light truth that has been lost. And then we'll go over the definition of a seer a little bit later, but I wanted to, to point that out in a little foreshadowing there. And it says in verse 14, And behold, the king of the people who are in the land of Zarahemla is the man that is commanded to do these things and who has this high gift from God. So we know that King Mosiah II is a seer. And 15, And the king said that a seer is greater than a prophet. Ammon follows that up in verse 16 and says, And Ammon said that a seer is a revelator and a prophet also. And a gift which is greater can no man have except he should possess the power of God, which no man can yet a man have great power given him from God. So we know now that a seer is a prophet and a revelator. And it gets into this discussion of what a prophet is. And there's capital prophet, you know, who's the leader of the church and the president of the church and called of God to testify to the world. And then there's prophet with a you know, little p. And that would indicate people who are given the gift of prophecy for their, their family, for themselves, for those over whom they have stewardship. Finally, in 17, he says, But a seer can know of things which are past, and also of things which are to come, and by them shall all things be revealed, or rather shall secret things, there again, secret, be made manifest, and hidden things shall come to light, and things which are not known shall be made known by them. And also things shall be made known by them, which otherwise could not be known. Thus God has provided a means that man through faith might work mighty miracles. Therefore, he becometh a great benefit to his fellow beings. And as I was reading these, I wanted to understand more of how a seer worked and how a prophet and a revelator and a seer they all sound pretty similar. And of course, we sustain our prophets and apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. So I wanted to dive into this discussion quite a bit more and understand 
what this means. And so I looked up and in the teachings of our living prophets, this is a manual from 2010 that we used to go over. It has a whole section on what are prophets, seers, and revelators. And I think this is the best explanation that I found. And of course, there's quite a bit more out there, but I really like this explanation. It says, a prophet is a person who has been called by and speaks for God. As a messenger of God, a prophet receives commandments, prophecies, and revelations from God. His responsibility is to make known God's will and true character to mankind and to show the meaning of his dealings with them. A prophet denounces sin and foretells its consequences. He is a preacher of righteousness. On occasion, prophets may be inspired to foretell the future for the benefit of mankind. His primary responsibility, however, is to bear witness of Christ. The president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's prophet on the earth today. Members of the First Presidency and the Twelve Apostles are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators. Okay, so the primary responsibility is to bear witness of Jesus Christ. But in all things, he is to bring forth the truth, remind people of the truth that we already know, and the consequences of not following that truth. It says here, a seer is a person authorized of God to see with spiritual eyes things which God has hidden from the world. He is a revelator and a prophet. In the Book of Mormon, Ammon taught that only a seer could use special interpreters or a Urim and Thummim. A seer knows the past, present, and future. Anciently, a prophet was often called a seer. And Joseph Smith is a great seer of the latter days. And of course, we know that to be true. He did use uh, many different types of instruments to interpret languages. Uh, he brought forth scripture that had been completely lost. So the thought process on a seer is that a seer is going to bring forth things that are that have been hidden. And Elder John A. Witso of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, A seer is one who sees with spiritual eyes. He perceives the meaning of that which seems obscure to others. Therefore, he is an interpreter and clarifier of eternal truth. In short, he is one who sees who walks in the Lord's light with open eyes. And then you get into the discussion of what a revelator is. As revelators, this is what the manual says, as revelators, the presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles make known the will of the Lord for the church and for mankind in general. And this is the key. They reveal his will in both spiritual and temporal affairs, though all things are spiritual to the Lord. They teach doctrine, direct priesthood quorums, guide auxiliaries, supervise the construction of meeting houses and temples, and do whatever else is necessary so that the gospel will roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth until it has filled the whole earth. Elder Witsos says, A revelator makes known the Lord's help, something before unknown. It may be new or forgotten truth, or a new or forgotten application of truth to man's need. So, in summary... Because I know that's a lot of words and they all sound really familiar. But in summary, a prophet is a teacher of known truth. A seer is a perceiver of hidden truth. And a revelator is a bearer of new truth. So when you wrap that all together, our prophets that we sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators are all three of those things in title. However, each of those is also a spiritual gift. And an apostle or a prophet can be stronger in one of those gifts or all of those gifts. The prophet Joseph Smith was obviously a very powerful seer. And I'm not saying that there haven't been other powerful seers, but I mean, it's kind of hard to compete with bringing forth the Book of Mormon and, and the miracles that he did in terms of interpreting. But we can also seek those gifts as well for our own or our family's benefit. 
And I think that that needs to be understood in there as well, that we cannot receive revelation or see or reveal things for the church or even for people who, over whom we have no stewardship, but we are entitled to those gifts of the Spirit, and we should seek them and develop them, just as our prophets, seers, and revelators today seek and develop those skills, those gifts of the Spirit in their lives. And Limhi gives a pretty good reason to help develop these gifts of the Spirit, at least in terms for our leaders. He says, doubtless a great mystery is contained within these plates, And these interpreters, which were doubtless prepared for the purpose of unfolding all such mysteries to the children of men, oh, how marvelous are the works of the Lord, or how long doth he suffer with his people, yea, and how blind and impenetrable are the understandings of the children of men, for they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that he or she should rule over them. Why? To reveal truth that will set us free, to keep us safe, to lead us to the promised land and keep us safe in that promised land. And then we go back to a more detailed account of Zenith and his people. This starts off in chapter 9, and he, he talks about Zenith going in and negotiating with the king of the Lamanites uh, for land. And Zenith admits to being a little too anxious here, where he says overzealous is the word he uses in verse 3. And he talks about, um, the, again, the major theme of the Book of Mormon that demonstrated over and over, like I said earlier, that as we keep the commandments in the promised land, we prosper. And if we don't, then we, are, uh, we have no promise. And he talks about the fact that as they're wandering in the wilderness, traveling towards the land of Lehi-Nephi, that they are actually smitten with famine and sore afflictions because they were slow to remember the Lord. And this is what he says in verse 3. He says, And yet I, being overzealous to inherit the land of our fathers, collected as many as were desirous to go up to possess the land, and started again on our journey into the wilderness to go up to the land. But we were smitten with famine and sore afflictions. Why? For we were slow to remember the Lord our God. So already they had been kind of warned. But they make it. They they repent, obviously. And he goes down and talks with King Laman and convinces King Laman to give him some land and to let his people prosper there for a little bit. I wonder too with his saying that he was overzealous and that you know hindsight being 2020 he figures out that King Laman was trying to trick him all along. I wonder if the Lord hadn't warned Zenith a few times. Not a a serious warning but just a hey this is going to be difficult and just know that you are really going to have to be laser focused on keeping my commandments if you want to be safe at all in the land. Maybe not. I mean, it's complete and total speculation, but it makes me wonder why he keeps saying that he was overzealous here and, and almost like he made a mistake in taking his people there. But anyway, he, they live they live in the land for uh, about 12 years before King Laman decides that he's kind of done seeing them prosper and he's ready to put them into bondage. And so King Laman sends people out to attack. Now, the people who are working in their fields and, and watching their flocks, they flee and they come and tell Zenith what's going on, and Zenith prepares them for battle, and they go out and they completely destroy the Lamanites. Uh, and it says in verses 17 and 18, it says, Yea, in the strength of the Lord did we go forth to battle against the Lamanites. For I and my people did cry mightily to the Lord that he would deliver us out of the hands of our enemies. For we were awakened to a remembrance of the deliverance of our fathers. 
And God did hear our cries, and did answer our prayers, and we did go forth in his might. Yea, we did go forth against the Lamanites, and in one day and one night we did slay three thousand and forty-three. We did slay them even until we had driven them out of our land. Three thousand and forty-three in one day. And now you compare it to their losses. It says, And I myself with mine own hands did help to bury their dead. And behold, to our great sorrow and lamentation, 279 of our brethren were slain. So, 3,043 versus 279. And I am no math major, but I know that that is less than 10%. That is a major slaughter. And this is going to continue. Chapter 10 is all about how Zenith's people have to stay constantly vigilant. And in, in all fairness, it was their choice to live so close to the Lamanites and risk war. But the Lord does support them, and they remain prosperous. And we read that King Laman dies, and that his son begins to reign in his stead, and he begins to stir up the people to anger against these very prosperous Nephites that are living next door. And remember that the the, Neph- the Lamanites feel like they've been wronged. They feel like they're uh, they were led out of the land of Jerusalem, the land of their first inheritance, uh, by Nephi. That Nephi took the records that Nephi tried to rule when it's their right to rule. So this is the narrative that they they keep getting fed over and over to each generation. And so this new king, of course, feels like he's been cheated by these people and that he has a right to rule over them and to tax them. And they attack again. And again, the Nephites, the people of Zenith, wipe them out. And in fact, it says that they they don't even count them this time because it it was such a slaughter. And they understand that, Zenith understands that as long as they stay righteous, they will be protected. And that's where we end in chapter 10 with Zenith saying they're prosperous, but they've had to battle against the Lamanites constantly. They have to trust in the Lord for protection. Uh, Verse 19, it says, and now I, Zenith, after having told all these things unto my people concerning the Lamanites about how they're, why they think the way they think, I did stimulate them to go to battle with their might, putting their trust in the Lord. Therefore, we did contend with them face to face. And after winning the battle, what do they do? They go back to their life. It says in verse 21, And it came to pass that we returned again to our own land, and my people be- again began to tend their flocks and to till their ground. And then King Zenith gets old, and he passes the kingship to his son Noah. He doesn't say it here, but we know it in the next few chapters. And now we begin the downward roller coaster that is the pride cycle of the Book of Mormon. And I want to close by bearing my testimony that I know that Jesus Christ is the God of Israel. And he is Jehovah over the promised land. And we live in a promised land at this time. And if we keep his commandments, we will be safe and protected just as Zenith was against the Lamanites that are right on his doorstep. And we are living amongst people who would harm us. And we have leaders who don't necessarily have our our good in mind. But we also have leaders who are fighting with us and who are for us and who remind us to keep the commandments and live properly. And these leaders are prophets. They are seers. They are revelators. And if we trust them and follow them and follow the Holy Ghost, we will be saved, protected, and we will prosper. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please do not hesitate to email me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or to text me at 916-412-2136. Thanks again and have a blessed day.